From the Orion Policy Institute, this is Orion Talks. Our podcast brings together experts for a conversation about events shaping the world at the local, national, and global levels. Tune in as we discuss foreign policy, security, human rights, political and economic development, and various other issues. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Orion Talks. I am your host, Fuad Chibukchu. According to the U.S. government and the Congress, the right-wing extremism is the most significant domestic terrorism threat to the United States. The rise of right-wing extremist ideologies and movements also become a pressing issue in Canada and Europe as well. These groups are complex with diverse ideologies and motivations. They are not isolated and can cooperate with other like-minded groups and form national and transnational alliances. Today, we will discuss far-right extremism with our guest, Dr. Barbara Molas. Welcome, Barbara. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for the warm welcome. Um, thank you for uh, joining uh, our show. Dr. Molas is a research fellow for the current and emerging threats program at International Center for Counterterrorism, as we know as ICCT. Dr. Molas received her PhD from York University in 2021 and has been studying on far-right ideology, online radicalization, and prevention. She has an international consulting background, having worked with intergovernment organizations, national prosecution services, and big tech companies. She recently published a book titled, Kennedy Multiculturalism and the Far-Right in 2022. She is also the co-editor of two books and many academic articles on the radical right. First of all, congratulations on your recent book, Barbara. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, uh, it's, it, I'm very proud of it. <laughs> uh, and it is it has a very interesting title, Multiculturalism and the Far Right. Uh, could you please explain how these two seemingly opposing themes, multiculturalism and the far right, intersect and interrelate to each other? Yeah, so thanks for the question. Uh, obviously, they're not two terms that we would easily put together in the same sentence. Uh, it's rather a contradiction, it would seem. Um, so yeah, in so this is the book is the result of my dissertation research or doctoral research, where I was essentially looking at how ethnic minorities in Canada over time would have perceived um, cultural integration. So we're talking about the efforts from you know, the late 19th century up until after World War II to try and like make sense of what Canada means or the Canadian nation means. Uh, and so when I, when I say ethnic minorities, I mean um, those who do not identify as like English speaking um, communities or French speaking communities. So anybody that is not the quote unquote the two uh, founding nations as they are studied in Canadian history. And so I ended up discovering that there was like a community of European um, immigrants in Montreal who were ideologically on the right side of the political spectrum and who had come to Montreal from Europe with these ideas being transplanted. And they wanted to, envisage or create a Canada that made sense for them from that right-wing ideological perspective. And so what they talked about is actually something that we've seen in contemporary politics with the uh, new right in France, uh, Nouveau Droit, 
which is, you know, the right to be different, the Europe, the Europe of nations, uh, the right to have communities that sort of like coexist, but do not mix, do not merge, where integration is not possible, but pro cultural protection is, is uh, a must. And mm -hmm. so they were already playing with those ideas in their early 30s. Um, and what I argue in my in my book is that they were the first ones to talk about the third force, which actually in Canadian history is considered to be a rhetorical turning point in conceiving Canada as a nation not of two groups, but two plus a third one, which represents all of those new immigrant communities that were creating the Canada that we know today. So in history, still to this day, in textbooks, in Canadian you know, universities and schools, they study multiculturalism as something that started with this concept, but they do look at this concept as a liberal concept. And what I say is the fact that the first people to say third force or third group were on the far right, because they were, you know, begs the question of like, is our multiculturalism in Canada rooted in far right ideas like does that help answer questions about systematic racism in the in the modern Canada that we all know and how like the nation was defined after World War II were those concepts transferred from these groups into the, the mainstream which is something that today we have seen right from the fringe to the mainstream so that's how multiculturalism and far right ideas sort of make sense in this historical uh, understanding of modern Canada as it were. Oh, so that's very interesting kind of the background. Thank you so much. So when you look at Canada, you know, and the relationship between the multiculturalism and the far right. So do you see a kind of similarities between the, the multiculturalism and the far right in the United States or in Europe? Mm -hmm. um, so if we talk about contemporary Canada, that's your question, right? Sorry, because we're yeah. jumping from like <laughs> the 30s to today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good question. Um, I do think that today their similarities i mean it's a, it's it's different countries uh, meaning that you know they've um individuals grew up conceiving their nations differently um looking mm -hmm. back at history and their role in building that nation differently so there's a lot of things that are not exactly the same but when we look at contemporary far right in general not only north america but north america and even western europe there is this idea that those who believe, um, I don't want to say white communities, but that's how they perceive it. White communities have something in common beyond the nation. So what I'm trying to say is like, regardless of whether there's similarities between Canada and the United States or Canada and Europe, far right groups are starting to look at each other. And what's new is that instead of focusing on their whatever they think is the, their nation, as traditionally the far right has done, right? Refocus protectionism, refocus on the collective. Mm -hmm. They look into, you know, they expand, they expand their sense of whiteness, thinking what is that we share in terms of concerns? What is that we share in terms of enemies? And so that's why I've written so much about COVID-19 and the impact on far right ideology, because COVID-19 allowed for these meta-narratives on identity to sort of emerge and allow the far right to have an excuse to talk to one another across borders. So even though, again, similarities might not be obvious, it's clear that the far right is trying to find this sort of like common ground from which to start a conversation and who should have the privilege over others. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. So you talk about the beyond the borders relationships. 
-hmm. And so when you look at the far-right groups and the movements, to what extent you see the Canadian United, you know, groups from the United States or European groups cooperate with each other or form alliances? When I say alliances, I'm talking about motivational alliances, like ideological alliances, logistical alliances, or operational alliances. So to what extent do you see these kind of alliances, uh, transnational alliances on the field? Yep. Very good question. And I mean, it's a crucial question, especially for law enforcement, right? They're trying to, to, to inform preventative practices in ways that allow for coordination across countries, if need be. And so they need that proof, no? Is there proof that these groups are not only exchanging ideas, but also logistically mobilizing? And I'm not sure to what extent that's happening because all I've seen, for example, specifically looking at the Freedom Convoy, um, which you know we've seen sort of like um, chapters, I wanna say in, in, informally using the word chapters here, but you know, in Canada, in mm -hmm. the US, in Sweden, for example, and in the Netherlands, these are groups that have very specific local concerns and but that are looking to have a projection internationally to get solidarity to get uh, plat more platforms to from from where to be heard and so you see that they're reaching out and trying to exchange ideas and trying to um even um send you know literature to read or like i text and images and even emojis and videos, all of these things are being exchanged. But then when it comes to mobilization, they still mobilize quite separately. I mean, I mm -hmm. even saw in Canada that Freedom Convoy groups on Reddit were dominated by Canadians, but were actively being sort of like, quote unquote, invaded by Americans who really liked the idea and wanted mm -hmm. to have a transnational, more coordinated convoy movement. And Canadians were very upset they would be like, no, no, this is a Canadian thing. Like, why would you come here and try to like sort of steal the thunder, right? So even though originally when the Freedom Convo Convoy was um, verbalizing their concerns about delivering in the United States produce from Canada, they were trying to get Americans' attention because this affected them too. So even yeah. though there was this transnational exchange of concerns and even redefining who should have more rights, you know, um, then when it came to mobilizing and actually uh, making an impact offline, then that didn't really happen. And even when in Canada, uh, experts assumed that there would have been a lot of American um, capital coming in to fund or support the convoy, then it turned out that when we actually had the numbers, we realized most of the money came from within Canada. So why? Because a lot of experts were seeing these exchanges online and assumed that maybe mm -hmm. offline, um, coordination was happening too, but actually it wasn't. So uh, to answer your question in simple terms, it's not clear. I mean, we I always tend to think that if you see the connection online and the interchanges and the you know the parallels and the links they're trying to build, you should always anticipate the possibility for offline action. And so coordination and, and information exchange across borders is extremely important. Um, but as of today, I don't see that happening, uh, you know, anytime soon. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. So you have been studying um, the far-right extremism for a while, and you look at historical concepts, use historical background, and also uh, contemporary uh, right-wing extremism. And also you have been collaborating with a variety of media outlets to educate non-expert audiences about far-right threats. 
So when you look at the, the overall public, so what are the common misconceptions that people have about far-right extremism? So I think, I mean, there's a few, and it's fair to say that, you know, not everyone has been looking at this for years. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the main problem that I find is that there's been a lot, and I was trying to hint at this before, a lot of normalization of far-right concepts. So for example, things mm -hmm. that we used to consider to be fringe or marginal are now everywhere. And so people are desensitized and they just like adopt them as normal. So for example, there's, uh, and I, I, I don't want to say anything specific, but there's even memes that are used um, easily in mm -hmm. platforms or groups that wouldn't necessarily be considered extremists, but that are flagged to us because these memes were created by the alt-right or by platforms that are trying to spread white supremacist ideas. So for example, I said I wouldn't want to get specific, but it's very hard to illustrate if it's not with an example. There's this character called Chad um, that features Aryan, character, uh, Aryan characteristics or features mm -hmm. and was originally conceived by groups uh, that were essentially far right because they were white supremacists and they were trying to spread and push for extremist ideas on ethnic minorities, visible and invisible ethnic minorities. And they used this character Chad as the alter ego. And I'm seeing this character being absorbed by groups that are again, not necessarily extremists at all, but I have seen this meme being used, they think it's funny and they adopt it. And so they carry this sort of like prejudiced imagery over to the mainstream. And so individuals who are not experts on, you know, the field and see yeah. this and think it's funny or that they can just share this with friends and then they carry on these ideas about, you know, what an Aryan should look like and why it's funny to associate with an Aryan and not with the other, quote unquote, the other, um, then it means that we have a problem in terms of like how, like we need to educate the public in sort of like helping them raise red flags when they see something that it's new, seems interesting, but might carry uh, harmful mm -hmm. narratives with them. Um, so that's why I talk a lot about the normalization of far right ideologies more than what's far right and what's not far right we've got to pay and um, pay more attention to like what are the far right narratives that are being transferred to spaces that wouldn't necessarily be targeted by uh, pcv workers as mm -hmm. platforms where people get radicalized okay so you know you really touched upon very interesting um context the memes that especially you know is spread out on social media um, so to what extent it influenced people? I mean, do you have any kind of an evidence or observation? So how these memes affect the, uh, the overall audience? Yeah, so it's a very good question. Memes have been associated with humor, right? So you're trying mm -hmm. to sort of like um, uh, joke around about issues that can be very serious. We have evidence that humor has been used to sort of disassociate the individual from the content. And so it's been used by extremist users to spread narratives that would be perceived as harmful right away. Mm -hmm. But then because it's used as humor or, you know, through satire, then they are able to circumvent the terms of service and legal frameworks of the platforms they use so that they don't get flagged. So humor so memes essentially have been used uh, because it allows 
for humor to conduct hate. And so Tina Scanius, uh, an expert uh, based in Sweden, has used the term uh, hate humor nexus. I mean, this is perfect for this, right? Because it allows mm -hmm. us to talk about humor as a radicalizing tool. And it's very key for us to essentially pressure social media to pay attention to this um, by keeping more manual monitoring of um, potential threats online rather than just having AI scan for flags because humor is something that, you know, an AI, a machine wouldn't really identify as dangerous because of obviously humor, satire, these are human rights, but the context is very important um, here. So. Yeah, um, great. So, so given the increasing prevalence of this kind of memes, disinformation campaigns, conspiracy theories, and the political polarization, and uh, I know you are also working on the prevention side, right uh, it's not just to understand how this happens also how we can prevent uh, far-right extremism so what are the biggest challenges in dealing with these issues and uh, prevention and also countering far-right extremism yeah um so very good question a very crucial question one of the things that i've observed is that we tend to talk still about far-right but it's uh, what the far right is and what it's not is becoming just more complicated since mm -hmm. COVID-19 because we've seen sort of an intersection of ideologies online um, that are framed in conspiratorial terms and that it includes, uh, they include anti-establishment sentiments that some experts associate with sort of far left. Um, and so I still think that it's um, useful to talk about far right if you see that whatever groups, whatever conspiracies, whatever circles are talking in terms of establishing a system that is defined by inequality, and that's far right to me. So it's still useful. Uh, but what is not useful is that because now far right is populated, so to say, with more um, ideas that are not clearly far right right away, we tend to dismiss a lot of these ideas. You know, for example, conspiracy theories, right? QAnon. Mm -hmm. At first, it was just like, quote unquote, a bunch of crazy people, maybe even uneducated people. I'm just quoting, um, you know, ways that harmfully dismissed this problem, right, at first, because it was not right away perceived as far right. So when yeah. we do counterterrorism, we have like three pillars, right? Jihadism or Islamist terrorism, far right and far left. So the problem with, you know, when you talk to law enforcement, to them, if, it, if the threat doesn't fit any of these categories, then where do we put it? So now what we, what we see with the far right, for example, because of this intersection of ideologies is that law enforcement doesn't really know how to apply prevention practices in place because it's not clear cut. Um, so what I would say is that the first challenge is, I wouldn't say let's define the threat. I mean, we haven't agreed on the definition of terrorism for years and we still are good at counterterrorism. So it's okay. We don't need to have a final definition of what the far right is, but, mm -hmm. We do need to learn to distinguish what out of a, a multiplicity of narratives can be flagged as far right in the sense that, you know, oh, this narrative sort of pushes effectively um, discourses that are considered to be potentially violent because of the pursuit of systematic inequality. If only one you know, if you're monitoring one specific group online and there's four main discourses going on on this, if only one of them applies to your definition of far right, just keep an eye on it 
because the mm -hmm. rest, you know, not because it's 20% and not more than 50% means that it's not, that it's something you can just dismiss because we have, we have seen this merging of ideas that are essentially very effective in reaching uh, out to more and new audiences that are willing to listen because they're tired, because they're anxious, because we've been through a lot in the last couple of years um, for obvious reasons. And it also allows us to go back to the legitimate concerns that individuals might have to avoid pe people and individuals at risk from jumping from um, a situation where they're you know, upset to a situation where they're extremely upset to the point that they're um, able to actively look for sort of alternative sources of information that lead them to fully distrust uh, uh, institutions in place to protect uh, liberties and freedoms, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, Barbara, thank you so much. It has been an eye-opening conversation for me and thank you so much for your great uh, comments. Thank you. No problem. Thank you Thanks for, for having me. Talks. Thanks for having me.